0: Welcome back creeps.
1: Hey y'all.
0: Guess what I have in my cup. Uh, That cup. What? Lemon iced tea. What? Yeah. Where the hell
1: did you get that?
0: I found it. I was looking for, um, not Kool-Aid. What's the other one? Crystal light. Uh Uh-huh. Because I was like, hmm, I've already drank like a lot of water today and I wanted something different. So, yeah. I was looking for a cherry or something, and I found lemon iced tea, and I had no sugar. so.
1: How is it?
0: Really fucking good. But then I was like, I drink so much black tea, I really need to just start making my own iced tea.
1: Yeah, dude. It's hot outside. Yeah.
0: Probably is like the most Irish thing about me is sitting out in the fucking 40 degree heat and humidity, just drinking hot tea and coffee. So yeah, maybe I should start uh, looking at how to make my own iced product
2: right
0: okay wait am i going first Did uh decide yeah. that? okay oh this week our patron of the week is meredith d thank you meredith d we love you dearly
1: meredith dearly
0: yes this guy just knocked at the door they're doing work in the back garden and he had a little like a half bottle half a plastic bottle cut up with like i thought it was just dirt He's like, you have a toilet? I was like, what? He's like, you have a toilet? I thought he was asking, could he use the restroom? I was like, oh, yeah. He was like, how many? <laughs> so I was like, uh, two? Was like, Put this in there. Half, half. One each toilet. Flush twice each toilet. And I was just holding this thing of dirt. And I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? But it was dye.
3: Oh,
2: it was
0: green dye. Like it I, it clicked with me eventually. But this guy just kept saying toilet to me over and over again <laughs> at the front door. I was like, what the fuck is going on?
1: I wonder if he was as frustrated with you as I am with like.
0: He looked like he was looking at me like I was a fucking idiot. He was like, toilet.
1: <laughs> yeah. that's toilet. What, like I'm looking at you like, wh- you know what a toilet is. Like, why don't yeah, you just answer the man? I
0: didn't know what. <laughs> the context of him just saying toilet to me over and over again was, fuck it (laughs) out this is not my day
1: (laughs) no it's not cause you were like cause I remember we were going through the Dunkin Donuts drive through and I told you what I wanted I was like I want a nice coffee two cream two equal caramel swirl light ice and and I've ordered this before. It's not like a brand new thing. Like
0: very recent, though.
1: It's recent, yes. So we get up to the window, and she's like, "Hi, uh, what can I get you, or whatever?" And he blinks and he looks at me, and I'm like, "We just discussed this. Like, we were, were just one car behind, and I'm like, iced coffee." And you're like,
0: "Yeah, two cream, tell me the rest two equals. equals. I couldn't I'm... fucking remember it. <laughs>
1: that's what I'm saying Obviously. Like I'm like you're having brain farts and
0: you were holding out this information though like it was top secret you are like Too and then you would go quiet and I was like and then what like then what happens
1: <laughs> I speak softly because I don't want to yell
0: anyway it doesn't matter because the lady still messed up my order yeah she did so I didn't get any iced coffee so that's now why I have iced tea anyway enough about our riveting lives <laughs> Today, we are learning about the Sally House.
1: Okay. You really want to buy a house, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the last one was about the <laughs> chance.
0: Oh, and the next one's about another house. <laughs> Um. So this one is like really, like one of those really famous cases. Yeah. I knew nothing about, but I know that like ghost adventures and stuff had been there. And also, I will preface this by saying, towards the end it'll probably seem like i wrap it up really quickly That's what she but it's said. just cuz there was a lot more information about the start of the story and I'll explain as we go on okay so atchison kansas okay built around 1867 by an mc finney who died in the house in 1872 i think it stayed in the finney family until like 1939 and then like a handful And had a handful more of the family pass away during that time. Nothing like drastic or anything, though. It's also important to note that one of the Finneys around 1905 time was a doctor. Which I didn't realize because they have the history of the house. And it's down as physician. And in my head, I just kept reading over that. So in 1958, there was an unexplained fire in the nursery. It just kind of started out of thin air and I don't even think it caused like a huge amount of damage, but it was definitely an odd occurrence. At some point between 1990 and 1992, the Humbard family were living there and they reported that their daughter Heather would play with an imaginary friend by the name of Sally. Mm. It was never anything strange. They just thought you know, young kids, blah, blah, blah. But the mom would call out the daughter and be like, what, why did you do this or that? And she would say, no, Sally did it. Or Sally told me to do it. And again, they just thought, oh, she's just being a little shit. <laughs> but on December 31st, 1992, this is where our story kind of starts.
2: Oh, 92. It's not that far. That well, That's not such so long ago.
0: No, like, we were both alive. <laughs> yeah. You know? And we're young, right?
2: Yes, (laughs) Adam. We are. Anyway,
0: on December 31st, 1992, Tony and Deborah Pickman move in. They're just a young couple, like really young from the pictures that I saw. Mm. Really 90s couple as well. Bleached hair everywhere. It's fucking great. But they were expecting their first child in the coming June. So they had just got married and they were trying to expand a bit for their new family. The house wasn't huge. But it was an upgrade to what they had been living in previously. This house was a two story, three bedroom house with an unfinished basement that had, it was split into two sections. Okay. Right. And it just had like all the pipes and shit. Like, you know what I mean? It was unusable.
1: I think you, wasn't there a story that you did where the basement was just like this?
0: Uh, The Demon of Brownsville was half and half.
1: Yeah.
0: That was a gigantic house. Remember, he was super proud of how big his house was.
1: Yeah, that's interesting how basements are set up that way more often than I thought.
0: Yeah. um, Anyway. Anyway, the basement doesn't really play into this story. I just thought it was interesting because everywhere I read about it, it made a point of saying unfinished basement. Mm. (laughs) But I think it just added a spooky factor to it. Yeah. It all was quiet in the house and nothing seemed out of the ordinary, but slowly small things started to happen. These were easily explained away at first, but over the next few months, more and more odd things would happen. Like the dog just barking aggressively at the door to the bedroom that they were planning to use as the nursery. But this, he only did this for like 10 days, but it was like 10 days straight. Mm -hmm. He just decided one day, fuck this door, fuck this bedroom, I'm going to bark. Okay. Yeah. Or every now and then the cats would stare. And follow something that seemed to fly over the pigman's head. Hmm. I mean, Porkchop literally did that to us last night, so I didn't want to oh. get too sucked into that. I was like, nope.
1: <laughs> you know, but she does that. Like, Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Normally, she looks at um, that corner where I have my little lamp. Yeah. She looks in that direction whenever we're in bed.
0: Yeah, but last but night that... she actually got up. And walked over there. over there. That's yeah. where I was like, I'm kicking her out. I'm kicking her out. Oh, that's see.
1: why you kicked <laughs> <Yeah>. her out.
0: Because <laughs> I saw her follow something and I couldn't see any flies or anything. So I was like.
1: Maybe it was St. Michael.
0: Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, other things that would happen were, was like their oven and microwave timers would just go off randomly. Just like oh. ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. Deborah said that Again, like they didn't find these things weird until like after the fact when they thought back, like, hold on, that actually happened a lot more yeah, frequently than it should have. And also they would happen like weeks apart. And then some days it might happen over and over and over again, like okay. different things, but yeah. like concentrated. There was consistent cold spots. In specific areas of the house, like particularly on the stairs and by the front door, they had like a portable house phone, which I'm not counting this as paranormal because it was 1992 and portable house phones surely weren't the most reliable thing back then. Yeah. But they said it would specifically not work in the nursery. As soon as Debbie or as soon as Deborah would go back out into the hall, it would be fine again. Mm. And then she'd cross the threshold and it would start crackling up. Mm. Also, like in other places of the house, um, like just weird connection shit would happen with the phone. Not the way it would happen in the nursery, but they even went and like got the battery replaced and all that. And I'm still saying, you know, maybe it was a dodgy phone, but on top of everything else that was happening there, like it had to have been paranormal. They had installed a ceiling fan in the living room, and for a period of time, the lights would dim, like, consistently every night for, let's call it two weeks. And they kind of made a joke out of it, because they'd be like, it would only ever happen when they were sitting in the sitting room, watching TV. The lights would get low, and they'd be like, ooh, it's like putting on the mood for us. But they were like, it must just be fucking dodgy wiring. There was no dimmer switch for this ceiling fan. Mm-hmm. So they were like, it has to be dodgy wire. And this is an old yeah. house. They called an electrician to check it out. Everything was fine with the cables, whatever. So eventually Tony just came out and said like jokingly, like, ha, we must have a ghost. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Back to the nursery. Deborah said that she would be in there hoovering and cleaning up and the wind up mobile over the crib would just start playing music. Okay, now the baby hadn't come along at this point. They just had it ready. Yeah. Like, and it is a cute story in that she was so excited to have her baby that she had all like the stuffed animals decorated around the nursery. and She was really proud of how she had decorated the mm-hmm. nursery. But yeah, she said that this music would just start playing at random and also other electronic toys would, quote, take on a life of their own and emit sounds, hums, and even distant-sounding voices.
1: That's creepy as fuck.
0: How did they not immediately blame this on ghosts? But still, they were like, oh, how odd. (laughs) (laughs) No, lady. (laughs) Like It's like a little fucking, I don't know, (laughs) Woody doll from Toy Story. And all of a sudden, it's like quoting the Bible or just having a random conversation with (laughs) the fucking teddy bear. No.
1: Quoting the Bible.
0: Other odd occurrences around this time included the TV or stereo coming on either like they would turn it off to go up to bed. Mm. And as soon as they pushed it like this was an actual physical button because it's back then. As soon as they would depress it, it would just come back on again. Mm. All on its own. Or they'd get like halfway up the stairs and the fucking thing would come back on, which okay. how annoying. And that was it, like just a long ass list of these small little things.
1: Why? I'm laughing because you're like, um, yeah. So that was it. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, guys, see you guys. Follow <laughs> yeah. us on Twitter. Follow- <laughs> Email us at Weekly Group. It was the most <laughs> annoying haunting
0: ever. <laughs> that is all. <laughs> so eventually, Deborah had her baby, Taylor. And when they brought him home, he would literally not sleep for more than an hour at night. That
3: okay. sucks.
0: Yeah. Debra said it was as if something was waking him up. Mm -hmm. Again, this was their first baby. So they thought like, oh, it must just be a normal thing. And we're just really fucking unlucky. He's a bad sleeper. And honestly, I kind of thought the same thing until I read that that's not normal. (laughs) (laughs) And she said like she would go in there, check his diaper, check, like try and give him food. Nothing like he was just awake now.
1: Oh, the baby. I thought you meant the husband. No.
0: I just said
1: oh my god I guess I just blinked out on that one part because you were like so she got up and checked this diaper I'm like hold on <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, hold that... the phone <laughs> okay we're gonna go back a little bit here <laughs> Deborah had her baby Okay. Taylor <laughs> and when they brought him home he would not sleep for more than an hour at night okay they just thought like oh he's a really bad sleeper and that's it They also noticed strange mold appearing in random places. And again, just for like a span of a few weeks. Yeah. And then no more. They said they would see it in Tupperware containers, pots and pans, which I was like, okay, fair enough. Maybe they're putting them into the the presses and they're still damp or something. But they also saw them on fridge magnets. And even on the dog food that they had just poured out, like they would pour it out, say at seven o'clock in the morning Mm. and come back at like nine or ten. And then there would be like mold Mold. on it that wasn't there earlier.
1: That's disgusting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then this one I found quite creepy. But while Deborah was like just casually chatting with some neighbors, the neighbor asked Deborah, how come she had been leaving on the light in the nursery all night? Mm hmm. Debra was like, I'm not. You must be seeing the light from the hall, you know, bleeding into the nursery. Yeah. Because they were talking about the baby not being able to sleep. Mm-hmm. So the lady was like, well, surely the fucking light being on all the time isn't helping. Yeah. So when Deborah said it must be the light from the hall, the neighbor said, no, I can see the bulb from my house. Like, I'm looking at this light being illuminated in the nursery. Yeah. At, like, all hours of the morning. They'd be getting up to go pee and look over and the light would be on. Either way, Deborah told them that Taylor had actually been sleeping in a cradle in their room with them because he had been sleeping so poorly. So, you know,
1: mind your own fucking business,
0: (laughs) mind your own business, but also what the fuck is going on? Who is turning on this light in the nursery? Yeah. Anyway, with Taylor not sleeping pretty much at all, Deborah's sister, Karen, offered to fly out from New York. Okay. Remember, they're living in Kansas. So she flies out and gives them a little help. She was there for five days and took over the night feeds while Deborah and Tony caught up on their sleep. And Deborah and Tony were like, literally, they were this close to just losing their shit because they were so sleep deprived. Yeah. And they were really grateful for this.
1: That sounds terrible to be sleep deprived.
0: Yeah. They also said when Karen got there, the baby kind of just chilled out. Huh. And started sleeping anyway.
1: Like stay here forever, Karen.
0: <laughs> yeah. So on Karen's last day, they're all hanging out at Tony's parents' house all day. Mm-hmm. Now, Tony's parents' house is five minutes from Debra, De- De- Debra and Tony's house. Mm-hmm. And also the rest of Tony's family all live within five minutes of their house. Like his brother, I think, is directly across the street. Anyway, they're all hanging out there and it's like late enough in the evening around like 9.30 or so, Tony's sister drops in and said she's just come from their house. She had let herself in because they don't lock doors Mm. in this town in the 90s. Okay. She was dropping off a high chair for the baby Mm -hmm. and she was like, and I did sneak upstairs to have a look at the nursery. Like, I'm really sorry. And... Deborah and Tony thought this was strange because they're like, we don't fucking care. Like, we literally left the door open. Yeah. <laughs> like, help yourself, go on in, take a look. Deborah was really proud of the nursery anyway, but the sister just seemed really nervous or guilty or something. And it was as if she was confessing to being there. Yeah. Anyway, later that night, not long after they got home from Tony's parents, Tony went upstairs to use the bathroom. Now, it was around 10 30. So, there was only about 20 minutes between the sister getting to the parents' house to tell them and them actually going home. And then they were chilling out in the house for about 30 minutes, and Tony went upstairs. When he came back down to the kitchen, he asked Deborah why she had put all of Taylor's stuffed animals on the floor in the nursery.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, Deborah and Karen didn't have a fucking clue what Tony was talking about. Deborah said she had meticulously arranged everything. Like, and a buttload of these stuffed animals all over the nursery. And again, she was really proud of it. Mm -hmm. The three of them marched back up the stairs. And as soon as they got to the nursery, they found all of the stuffed animals, all of them,
3: Mm.
0: organized in a circle, shoulder to shoulder, facing forward. What? Yeah. To me, that was so much creepier. Like, if they were all in a circle... Looking at each other, I'd be like, oh, you know, cute little teddy bears picnic. But the fact that they're all facing out watching yeah, freaked me out. And another thing that I found out later, after I had read all this, that when Tony first went up the stairs
3: mm-hmm.
0: and saw these bears, he only saw three of them. There was only three of them in a circle leaning up against each other. And in the couple of seconds between going down and coming back up, All of them were now in this circle.
1: The whole squad.
0: The whole fucking crew, yeah. They're all fucking confused and blaming each other and being, like, you know, convinced that this was a joke. Yeah. Again, they never locked their front door. Jeannie, Tony's sister, had been there earlier, and his brother and him were always playing, like, weird pranks on each other anyway, and his brother only lived across the road. They called Jeannie, and she said that she hadn't seen anything weird, but... The real reason why she had gone over to the parents' house earlier was because when she dropped off the chair, she had been so totally creeped out, specifically when she got to the nursery. She felt like she was intruding on something. Mm -hmm. She didn't see anything weird or anything, but it was such a strong feeling that she was literally going around to the the parents' house to warn Tony and Deborah that she had gotten this strange fucking feeling out of nowhere. But when she got to the parents' house, there was a lot of other visitors there. And so she just couldn't bring it up like normally. So anyway, they ruled Jeannie out because she seemed genuinely scared. And figured it must have been Tony's brother. Okay. They put all the toys back where they belonged, including one specific scruffy looking teddy bear who sat on the chair in the room. It was like a wicker chair. Tony turned off the light and they headed back downstairs. Deborah first, then Tony, then Karen. As she got to the bottom of the stairs, Karen turned to look back up, only to see that the light in the nursery had come back on.
3: Mm.
0: Now, I'll show you pictures, but the stairs goes up and the nursery is the very first door right there. And it's not a huge house like you can clearly see it. They creep back up the stairs as if like they were literally expecting to find. I think Greg was Tony's brother here. Like they were expecting to find him in the room laughing at them. Yeah. Being like, oh, I gotcha. So they sneak back upstairs, but when they look back into the room, all they see is that one scruffy teddy bear laying flat on his back in the middle of the floor. Okay. Still convinced it was Tony's brother, they search the upstairs of the house until finally they have no possible explanation for what just happened other than ghost. They didn't even believe themselves. Like, they didn't believe each other. Even as they were running these theories out, they were like, no, it was definitely fucking Tony. And Tony <laughs> was thinking, no, it was definitely fucking Karen. And Karen's like, that's Deborah. I know yeah. it. Like, they speculated that maybe it was a child ghost okay. or maybe a woman who was happy to have a baby back in the house. But regardless, Karen said, let Tony put the bear back because Deborah had put it back the first time. And Deborah and Karen stood there and watched him put the, the bear back. Okay. That they all left the room together turning off the light as they went. Okay. And then they all went back down the stairs, like, basically holding each other. (laughs) This time they got downstairs and cautiously looked back up and the light stayed off. Okay. They decided to sit and watch TV for a while. They had been renting movies and, like, just having... Because the sister was visiting, so it was, like, you know, her kind of vacation, even though she was there to help them out. Yeah. But they had been renting, like, VCRs and shit, and that's how they were spending every evening.
2: Yeah. You mean tapes?
0: Tapes, yes. Yeah. This particular night they had rented a load of horror movies to sit oh. and watch.
2: <laughs> Bad car.
0: Yeah. Anyway, they're all sitting around watching TV for a while, like regular TV, just nobody saying a word about mm-hmm. what just happened. Around ten fifty, remember all this happened around ten thirty. Around ten fifty, Deborah announces that she needs to pee. She's acting pretty brave. She's like, I'm just gonna go upstairs go for a piss
1: is that what
0: yeah that but sucks she's like overcompensating she was terrified but she was trying to not make a big deal out of it yeah so
1: they don't have a bathroom in the first floor
0: uh no i don't think so
1: terribly inconvenient
0: yeah a little bit so like that she was acting brave but also letting the others know so they didn't think that she was the one like playing the trick on them or anything yeah the other two were like wait what what do you mean? You're going up there, alone? Yeah. <laughs> so they say, right? Well, look, we'll wait at the bottom of the stairs while you go pee. Yeah. As she went up the stairs, she could see the nursery door. The room was still dark, but and like that, it's the first door, so every step she took, she could see a little more, a yeah, little more, a little of more. Yeah, the room, yeah. But as she nears the top, she could see in perfectly, and finally, she sees right there. Smack bang in the middle of the floor, lying in what looks like the exact same position is the scruffy teddy bear.
1: Where did they get this bear again? I don't fucking know. Oh.
0: The other two come running up and they literally start looking for strings and magnets. They're like, there has to be some sort of rational explanation for this. Somebody's playing a trick on this. Yeah. But again. Nothing. Nothing. They didn't know what to do. They thought about hightailing it back to Tony's parents, but in the end, they decided they would bring the TV and video player up to the main bedroom, and they would all spend the night in there.
3: <laughs>
0: two cats, one dog, one baby, two sisters, and Tony. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh. Uh,
1: yeah. Just thinking about the cats, all the animals and shit.
0: Yeah, and she said, that literally, like, Deborah packed up drinks uh the baby formula like they're they camping literally they brought a room. cooler for the milk yeah anything they thought they were going to need for the night <laughs> they brought with them
2: that's smart
0: i mean yeah tony said he'd sleep on the floor so they brought up some cushions off the couch for him yeah and deborah went up first she had like the the baby and couch cushions and all that so she's getting the little bed set up for tony Mm-hmm. Karen and Tony go back downstairs to grab the TV and VCR player. And as Deborah's putting Tyler in his crib, she hears Tony say, Oh shit, before him and Karen come running up the stairs. Yeah. As he was walking out of the sitting room, big ass TV in hand, out of the corner of his eye, he sees a bean bear, right? It's so like a beanie bear. Okay. But big. Uh huh. It's like a foot tall. Anyway, it's on the TV stand. And it just completely spins around on its own. Whoa. Now, the importance of it being a beanie bear is that it was like a weighted bear. I didn't understand that at the time until later on.
1: Well, even bears that are not weighted don't typically
0: spin around. Yeah. But it just added even more like it couldn't have been the fan, you know, like because a regular (laughs) stuffed animal is quite light. It could blow over or something.
1: Yeah, but they will never spin.
0: No, but these guys were looking for any yeah. Logical explanation. So now, safely in the bedroom, Deborah notices that she has this like pretty big teddy bear on top of a wardrobe,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's just kind of looking at them all. It's the like,
2: room. "No teddy bear."
0: Yeah. She takes it down and leaves it in the hallway and closes the door. That's it for the night. No more dramatic, ghosty shit or anything. Mm-hmm. They all just hunkered down, and everything was fine.
1: And no fucking bears.
0: No fucking bears. The following morning, Karen flies back to to New York. And while Deborah is upstairs minding her own business, Tony's brother, Greg, calls in, the one who they all thought was Mm -hmm. doing this to them. Tony tells him everything. And now, like, looking back on it, he's laughing because he's like, yeah, man, we were all fucking camping in our bedroom, like, terrified. But Greg kind of takes him seriously. And he picks up this camera and starts taking pictures. And he turns around and he focuses his camera on the little bear on the TV stand and says, if you're here, do you want to have your picture taken? Yeah. As he clicks the, the button on the camera, the bear spins around right in front of him. Wow. Yeah. At this point, the two lads lose their shit and shout for Deborah. They decide it's probably for the best if they go and spend the day at Tony's parents' house. As Tony is putting Taylor in his car seat, it's one of those car seats that you put in the car oh in my head i was picturing him outside putting the baby in the car but no he's in the house and the car seat is on the couch and tony's putting taylor in the car seat
3: okay
0: probably making that a lot more complicated than it yes. should be but in my head anyway Deborah's kind of standing there doing her own thing and she's but she's looking at him and all of a sudden she just sees him bolt up straight like she asks, what the fuck just happened and he says, ah, I must have got bitten by a bug or something. Mm-hmm. But when they get to Tony's house, Tony's parents' house, which, again, is only five minutes away, Deborah pulls up his shirt to find three long-ass scratches down his back. Uh-oh. That was July 14th, 1993. They weren't quiet about this like Tony's brother knew. Deborah's sister knew. So... They got talked like they told Tony's parents when they got to the house Mm -hmm. why they were there. Like we're scared, Mm -hmm. and one of Tony's brother's co-worker's sisters Mm
3: -hmm.
0: just so happened to be a psychic medium. She had grown up in the area, had moved out and become like successful in her trade. She did lectures in California and stuff like that on, I guess, mediumship or just paranormal studies or something like that. Mm -hmm. Kind of like what Ed and Lorraine Warren do. Or did in the Conjuring movies. You know they traveled around giving lectures. But anyway she just so happened to be back visiting. When all this shit started going down. So they got got in touch with her. And about two weeks later she came. To check their situation. About an hour before this lady. Her name is Barbara. About an hour before she arrived at the house. A candle in the bathroom just lit itself. Randomly.
3: Mm.
0: Now Deborah was very persistent that any of the candles that they had in the house yeah. were purely decorative because she was paranoid having cats with candles. Yeah. So, for it to light, they literally could not think of anything that would cause that. So, it was just totally out of the blue. Barbara came and she was in the house for about an hour and a half and she picked up on a little girl who liked to be called Sally.
1: Mm, generic name. I don't trust it. <laughs>
0: Deborah and Tony conducted this as like a full-on interview like they had borrowed a camcorder from someone they had a polaroid camera and their own regular like snapshot I think a 35 mile camera camera they wanted to document everything like for their own sanity I think at this point mm-hmm. and also they wanted to know everything that Barbara said so they could look back on it and go oh yeah I remember like she said xyz anyway Barbara said that Sally was around seven years old. She had discomfort in her abdomen, a pain in her hand, and a toothache. She told Deborah that she needs to treat Sally just as she would any other child, scold her when she acted out, and like include her. Like, you know, she just wanted to be loved kind of thing.
1: Just include in the fa- like a family member. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: But Sally's messages through Barbara were kind of mixed. One of the things Barbara said as Sally was she didn't like Deborah. She bugged her. She was too bossy. She had too many rules and I can't remember them all. They asked Sally if she would like a doll of her own, just like all the toys upstairs. And Barbara responded as Sally. Well, all right then. (laughs) (laughs) So, Even before Barbara came, Deborah had actually bought some crayons and some paper for Sally and just left them up in the nursery. Now, this was not recommended by anyone. It was just something Deborah felt like she should do. Mm -hmm. Barbara thought that was a fine idea and suggested that they move all of Sally's things to a specific corner in the nursery where she seemed to spend most of her time anyway. Okay. She said Sally came across as very protective over the new baby in particular. And Deborah's first thoughts were like maybe she was actually a guardian angel or a guardian spirit, and that this was very specific. I don't know where she got this from, but she thought Taylor was supposed to be a victim of sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS, and Sally was waking him up so often, like every hour on the hour, in order to save his life. Hmm. Now, I don't know where Deborah came up with this idea, but. This was her line of thinking, anyway.
1: Especially if I mean, her husband just got scratched. Where the fuck did, is she getting why, all the? Where is she getting all this? And why is she not more suspicious because of that huge detail? It's like they're treating it like a minor detail. Yeah. Or not even really addressing it, or.
0: Yeah, and that's a consistent thing here. So Deborah asks Barbara why Sally had been so silent for so long, because they had been in the house, I think, seven months at this stage, Uh maybe more. And Barbara said she probably just is starting to feel more and more comfortable now that the baby is there and they're a real family. And like this whole family dynamic is just something that Sally needs. And now she feels kind of accepted. Okay. So, like the scratches and stuff, they just think she's a little girl acting out, just trying to get attention any way she can. Mm-hmm. But Barbara did warn them to be extra cautious when leaving Taylor on his own. Like, say, for example, if they left him in like one of those swings in the doorways or anything, just because, like, a regular child, Sally could hurt him unintentionally, yeah. you know, trying to play with him or anything. The candle lighting by itself in the bathroom was an example of her childish curiosity getting the better of her maybe this is what barbara said either way they told her that this was absolutely not allowed in any circumstances this was one of the rules that they were laying down as they talked with barbara they were telling her some of the stuff that they had experienced up until now like which i mentioned earlier stuff that they hadn't necessarily thought of as paranormal the mold cold spots etc when they mentioned that they would occasionally get like really strong smells, like seemingly out of the blue, the whole place suddenly smelled like cherry Kool-Aid. Weird. And all of them, I think there was Barbara, Barbara's sister came along just to keep her company, Tony and um, Deborah, and I think Tony's siblings were there too. Every single person just got this really strong smell of cherry Kool-Aid. And Barbara said this was just One particular way that she is able to communicate with them to show that she's there. Other smells included cooking broccoli and perfume. Things that she supposedly liked when she was alive. Now, what kid enjoys the smell of cooking broccoli? I don't know, but it might have reminded her of when her mom was cooking, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, Barbara did admit that guessing time periods of when people were alive is not her strong point. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, well, fair enough. If you ask the kid.
2: It's not going to know.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a six or seven year old child probably isn't going to know their birthday.
1: or what year? year. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know. So interestingly enough, though. Tony had had a strangely vivid dream not long before this and had drawn a picture of a little girl in a blue dress with brown hair and a little boy sitting leaning against a tree. Barbara told them that that's a very good likeness of her mm-hmm. and told them that these dreams are another way for her to, to be able to communicate with her. Yeah. Or with them. When they took Barbara up to the nursery, she kind of freaked out saying like, cause they all went up, you know? And she said, there's way too many people in here. She doesn't like it. You all need to leave. So Barbara and Deborah stayed there and everyone else just kind of stood at the doorway, looking in. Tony, is still on the fence about all this. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Partly freaked out and partly does not believe in it. Deborah asked if Sally was happy that they had been able to make this connection. And Barbara told her she's a really loved little child. Like she was ecstatic Mm -hmm. that they were actually talking to one another. Before Barbara and her sister left, they were all sitting in the living room. Like literally, they were just having a, a quick drink before they headed out. Tony was in the kitchen getting them coffee or fucking whatever. And next thing, the living room light just turns off for a few seconds and then comes back on. Then the dining room and Tony said it also happened in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Nobody was afraid and they all said, thank you, Sally. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like Sally was saying goodbye to Barbara and Mm -hmm. the sister. After Barbara and the sister left, some of the neighbors came over with a couple of old dolls that their own kids had played with uh when they were younger. Now I don't they must have been talking like they must have known who Barbara was and whatever. So anyway, they brought them up to the nursery only to find one of the teddy bears on its back in the middle of the floor.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Other than that, it all seemed pretty normal until Deborah realized that someone had written on the paper that she had left for Sally. Now Deborah herself had left a little note saying, Hello Sally, how old are you? And now what looked like the number seven And the word like had been written underneath it. So after Barbara's visit, the activity died down. I remember like before, it would stop for like seemingly months Mm -hmm. or like maybe they just weren't noticing it. And they would go again weeks, sometimes without having any strange occurrences. And just when they were starting to think, oh, maybe maybe she's moved on. Then the stereo or the TV would come back on or candles would be lit unexplainably. Other less obvious things that they found included a strangely melted candle on a shelf in the living room. Quote Another burnt candle, which had set in a sconce on the living room wall, had what looked to be burnt finger marks at the base of the candle. They would find pictures hung on the wall upside down. One in particular of the two, of Deborah and Tony, Mm -hmm. would just be completely inverted on the wall. And photographs that were developed weeks after they had actually been taken because that's what people used to have to do. They just have to take the film and go and get it thing. And they would forget about it. So weeks later and they would get developed and they, they would have all these weird shit on them. For example, there were multiple different colored blobs basically Mm -hmm. for want of a better word. And I will include some of them that I managed to screenshot from a documentary, the website that I got, that I got most of this information from Mm -hmm hasn't been updated in like four or five years and there's a note down the bottom saying that it's you know something bigger and better is coming but a lot of the picture links are broken which was really frustrating i did reach out to them to see if i could get them Mm -hmm. but um i don't know if they're even still alive like anyway these blobs are (laughs) like manifestations let's say sounds a bit No, let's stick with blobs blobs okay Anyway, they couldn't be like, disproven by experts. And Barbara told Deborah that the colors in the pictures represented love and happiness. It was like warm blue colors. And another picture, which Deborah didn't think had anything strange in it when she first saw it, she had taken a picture of Sally's little area in the nursery. And she said when she got photos of this type of thing developed, she would leave them in her area so sally could look at them later on Mm -hmm. she's very close with this child or she's really making an effort to make the child feel included yeah the spirit feel included a few days later tony is up in the nursery and he's looking at the photograph and he brings it down to deborah and he's like look closely at this one of the crayons that was on sally's paper in the photograph was actually standing upright and casting a shadow on the paper. Oh wow! Yeah. Now, obviously, he had to look real close to see that, and Deborah hadn't noticed it the first time. Yeah. It is interesting that how the activity in the house drew totally different reactions from the two. Mm-hmm. Even as Deborah wrote these accounts of what went on, like what I'm telling you is first hand accounts of Deborah that I just fucking paraphrase them basically, but. You can tell that she's not really afraid Mm -hmm. at any stage here and is clearly encouraging the behavior. Tony, on the other hand, was terrified. Yeah. He was not comfortable with this at all. Both of them had been born and raised Catholic, but Tony's family were like very well known in the area. It's a small town, that kind of thing. So he was afraid of people finding out, afraid of what was going to happen. And he was a little bit more God fearing than Deborah was but he was also the man of the house and he couldn't let Deborah know
1: that he was scared how
0: scared he was so he wasn't encouraging it but i don't think he was discouraging her behavior either yeah so i'm i'm going to leave it there for now for this week because there's actually still another good bit just of these experiences while they were living there i will say that they didn't live there for that long but longer than i would have yeah but a lot of this like now that they're talking in hindsight about it, like the different reactions, they're seeing that there was an active divide between Tony and Deborah. Mm-hmm. And a sm- even if it was just like, oh, Tony was uncomfortable with it at first, mm-hmm. it, that wedge gets bigger as the story goes on. Oh. So, again, there's a lot of similarities here. Like all the other haunting stories that we tell, you know, where it's divide and conquer yeah with the family
2: Hmm.
0: anyway tune in next week for part two of the sally house this story because i thought it was going to be one of those like say like the winchester house yeah to me that's a shitty story it's it's a completely made-up story yeah the house is kind of freaky looking i get it i'd probably shit myself if i spent the night there but the actual bones of the story are like fairy tale like to me no offense to anybody who really likes that story yeah think what you want but I thought that this was going to be a similar one mm-hmm. and I was pleasantly surprised yeah anyway
1: Huh. I'm excited about this story
0: good now it's your turn
1: can't wait to hear more
0: what what this iced tea is working a treat by the way for all you people out there who are wondering
1: alright here we go y'all hang on to your panties oh, oh.
0: shit Real quick, actually, I cannot believe the amount of mullets I've been seeing lately. Like, where? All over.
1: Okay, but in real life or internet?
0: No, no, no. In real life, like, anytime we leave the fucking house, I see at least one person with a mullet, I feel like. And it's not like an ironic mullet. Yeah. Like, it's honest to God, dudes standing there with a full on mullet, just loving it. Yeah. Like relishing their mulletness. Yeah, I don't know if I'm if I'm tripping and like this the mullet's still a good look. Let me know because fucking I'll get one.
1: Well, I mean the <laughs> the '90s are coming back, and I that one I think mullets ran rapid during that time, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's just a part of that movement.
0: Maybe, maybe they make me uncomfortable. I'm not gonna lie.
1: All right, we'll just look away. It'll be okay. So, my sources are Cleveland Historical, Cleveland Police Museum, and Unsolved Casebook, where you can find more specific details Un- Unsolved Casebook is the website. It's oh, not a book. Okay, okay. That's why it threw me back. I'm like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. During the 1930s, the Great Depression, 15 million Americans were unemployed. President Herbert Hoover was a dud in his presidency spouting nonsense about being patient and self-reliant in order to get through poverty. Despite this, Cleveland, Ohio was booming, with its major business being steel work and manufacturing. There were tons of jobs, and its citizens had a better chance of making it here than they did anywhere else in the U.S. That's not to say this solved all the homeless and poor population. Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric riverbed that runs along the east side of Cleveland, near Shaker Heights, and goes westward through Kingsman Avenue and down the Cuyahoga River. It became an area for railroad traffic. This is where most of the homeless people gravitate towards in the 1930s. Transients would hop on and off the train that ran through here for various reasons like escaping the cold. The area to the east of the run was known as the Roaring Third, which housed brothels, gambling dens, and cheap hotels.
0: That sounds like where I would want to live.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're alone on that. In September 1934, a man found the lower half of a woman's torso, thighs still attached, but the rest was amputated at the knees. The torso washed up on the shores of Lake Erie, which is not far from Kingsbury. The Cuyahoga County Coroner, A.J. Pierce, noted that the torso was covered in a preservative and it turned the skin red and leathery. What? The police set off to find other parts of this woman to no avail. The woman was never identified and was known as the Lady of the Lake. So just this torso.
0: That's insane. Also, Red Leather Torso sounds like a fucking really cool, like, 70s lady punk band or something.
1: When you mentioned candles and cats, I was like, that sounds like a really cool metaphysical store.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That has, like, a house cat in there.
1: Yeah. It's several. Mm -hmm. In September of 1935, two teenage boys found the decapitated and emasculated corpse of a white male on 49th Street again near Kingsbury Run. The body still had its socks on. It was cleaned and drained of all of its blood.
0: That's such an odd detail, though, having the socks on.
1: Yeah. The man had rope burns on both wrists, and the coroner determined that the cause of death had been decapitation. They used his fingerprints to determine that the victim was 28-year-old Edward Andrasi. What we know about him was that he had a criminal record and he liked to frequent the Roaring Third. I know that they did find the head of Andrasi, but I don't know where or if it was the same day that they found the body, but they eventually did recover the head. Close to where the body of Andrasi was found, police found a third body that was also decapitated and emasculated.
0: So they cut off his dick and balls?
1: Yeah, his cash and prizes, yeah. Okay. Um, And were
0: these treated the same way as the woman? uh, No. Okay.
1: The skin was covered in the same kind of preservative as the Lady of the Lake was. This body was never identified, but it seemed to have been dead for weeks. All we know about this victim was that he was approximately 40 years old. So, like, the MO of this person is, like, men and women. Yeah. Young and old. It's very rare. And it doesn't seem like there's a reason behind it. Okay. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no method to his madness. Literally. Yeah.
1: I guess you could assume that he's a product killer because maybe he wants to maybe he kept these pieces or just the pieces were never found.
0: Yeah. Or maybe he just liked creating mayhem, like fucking maybe and Dicky Ramirez.
1: Yeah. And these people were definitely not well, I mean, I guess the ones that couldn't be identified, but um, you could only assume. But the ones that were, were not well to do. They were, you know, nobody's prostitutes. Like nobody's. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's not me saying nobody's. Nobody's as far as society victims go. Yeah. The less dead. Isn't that what they call?
1: called? Yeah. So that I, this is just so peculiar. His victims or her victims. In January 1936, a woman discovered half a woman's body, wrapped in newspaper, and divided into two baskets. The baskets were found near Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue. The head was never found. Cause of death was ruled as decapitation. The body was identified using fingerprints. The body belonged to Florence Palio, who worked as a barmaid a waitress, and a prostitute.
0: She's a busy lady.
1: I know. She lived on the edge of the Roaring Third. In June 1936, on Kingsbury Run, two boys found the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of pants. The day after this discovery, police found the body of a man who was approximately in his 20s. He was cleaned and drained of blood.
0: The day after? Yes. Wow.
1: The body was whole, Except for the head. Coroner Pierce again determined the cause of death to be decapitation. The man's fingerprints were ran, but nothing came up, which usually means he didn't have a criminal record and was probably never in the military. The body had six distinct tattoos, but was never identified. I have a fun fact for you, Adam. A plaster reproduction of what the man's head would have looked like was made along with a diagram with the kind of tattoos he had and on what parts of his body. This was displayed at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936, a.k.a. the World Fair.
0: No way.
1: The head was named the Death Mask. What they dubbed the Tattooed Man was never identified.
0: That's crazy, and literally on display for all the world to see.
1: Correct. You can still see the death mask because it's on display at the Cleveland Police Museum. Don't ask me to go because I'm never going to Cleveland, Ohio.
0: (laughs) What, after hearing these stories?
1: Literally, like, last story was in Cleveland. This one's in Cleveland. My next story is in Cleveland. We're never going to Cleveland.
0: I actually really want to go to Cleveland.
1: You can go. In July 1936... A teenage girl found the decapitated body of a white male who was approximately in his 40s when he was killed. She found him as she was walking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek. The victim was dead approximately two months, and his head and his clothes were found only a few feet away. When police searched the area, they found the soil underneath the body was soaked with huge amounts of blood. And it was determined that the man was murdered where he was found.
0: That's a lot different to the rest of them.
1: Exactly. Mm. hmm In September 1936, a transient was hopping a train out of town when he literally tripped on the upper half of a man's torso. Jesus in Christ. In Kingsbury Run. Like littered. These bodies like, are oh, littering. Sorry, oh. <laughs> yeah. They're <laughs> littered everywhere. Like rocks. They're everywhere. It's fucking crazy. Police found the lower half of the torso in a nearby open sewer of gross ass water. (laughs) The lower half was missing chunks of the legs. I read that they sent a diver to retrieve the remains of the lower torso, which attracted hundreds of spectators from the area.
0: How did they find the lower half if they had to get a diver to get it?
1: They searched the area. And they saw this pool of gross water, and they're like, "Let's search
0: it." Oh, sorry. Okay, okay. Yeah,
1: they were doing their job in this moment.
0: That's impressive. It I'm is, surprised. isn't it?
1: <laughs> Maybe that's what prompted your question. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wow. This victim was in his late twenties, and his cause of death was ruled decapitation. Coroner Pierce noted that the head was removed with practice precision, and lacked hesitation marks. This is the first mention of precision. Um, I'm going to assume that the others weren't this- as practice. Okay. You know, because there were other bodies that were decapitated, but this was the first mention that I've, I've read. I have it was a precision cut. Correct. It could be because he knew what he was doing or because he was used to it by now.
0: Yeah, he was just getting better practice out there.
1: The victim died instantly and an idea was never made. The police were stumped and had no clues or leads as to who the Mad Butcher was. Like, he had several names at this point. Okay, yeah. The Cleveland Torso Killer is how you'd know him
0: by. I prefer the Mad Butcher. Very of the times. (laughs) The Mad Butcher strikes again!
1: (laughs) The people of Cleveland didn't feel safe, and Mayor Harold Burton wanted Elliot Ness to get more involved in the case which was headed by detectives Peter Merlot and Martin Zalowski. A little bit about Elliot Ness.
0: I recognize that name.
1: You should. Ness came from Chicago and joined the Bureau of Prohibition that would enforce the Prohibition Act of 1919. At this time, Herbert Hoover was trying to take down Al Capone, Mm. who was initially being looked at for just tax evasion at this point. But soon found out that he had tons of illegal breweries and supply routes for the bootleg hooch. U.S. Attorney George E.Q. Johnson, who oversaw the Capone case, hired 27-year-old Ness to gather a team of his choosing in order to collect evidence and help him take down Capone. The attorney didn't have many options, as a lot of the Chicago police force had turned corrupt by Capone and his associates. Ness and his team, known as the Untouchables, took down Capone and his $9 million operation in only six months. Wow. They were known as untouchables because, like, of course Capone and his gang tried to corrupt them, but they couldn't.
0: Fucking narcs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, given his reputation, it made sense that the mayor of Cleveland wanted Ness on this case. Marilyn Zalowski went undercover and talked to more than 1,500 people who lived or visited Kingsbury Run and the Roaring Third, since that was the common denominator in all of this. November elections would replace Pierce as coroner with Sam Gerber, whose career was in medicine, but he also had a degree in law. This made him a huge asset in the case. Yeah, these
0: were like... What do people do with their time? Like, (laughs) Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. I mean, he wanted to go somewhere. Obviously. Yeah. I wanted to be someone. Anyway, in February 1937, a man discovered the upper half of a woman's torso. It was washed up on the shores near East Broughtonall. This one was different as the cause of death was not ruled as decapitation like the others, although she did wash ashore without a head. <laughs> the lower half of the same woman would wash ashore three months later. She was in her mid-twenties and was never identified. And apparently, uh, a cause of death was never determined either.
0: Yeah, because three months in the fucking water, or...
1: Well, one half.
0: Or was someone holding on to the other half, and then...
1: Maybe. In July 1937, a member of the National Guard was on watch and saw the first piece of what the ninth victim would be trailing behind a tugboat. A more thorough search yielded the rest of the man who was in his late 30s when he was murdered. So bits of him were just trailing along.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Again, no head. The abdomen of the body was gutted and the heart was ripped out. In April 1938, a man on his way to work spotted a dead fish on the shores of Cuyahoga River. Only it was no fish. No fish. It was a woman's shin.
0: Shin. It was a shin fish. Ugh. It's such an odd thing to be. Yeah. Like, I don't think I've ever heard of somebody finding a shin.
1: A month later, police fished out two burlap sacks that contained the rest of the woman's leg, her other leg, and her torso. Whoa. Coroner Gerber detected drugs in the victim's system. The arms were never found. Maybe the killer was drugging his victims. Or maybe they were regular drug users. Who knows? The woman was never ID'd. On August 16, 1938, three scrap collectors were digging through a dump site on East 9th and Lakeside and found the torso of a woman wrapped in a men's double-breasted blue blazer and then wrapped again in an old quilt. The legs and arms were later found wrapped in brown butcher paper and sealed with rubber bands. The head was also found nearby, wrapped in the same fashion. Gerber noted that the body was refrigerated after the murder took place. In this same dump site, police also found the body of another victim. Because a dump site was within sight of Elliot Ness's office, it was believed that the killer did this on purpose to taunt Ness. I bet. At this point, the victim count was up to 12.
0: And it sounds like it could have literally been a butcher if they're using the paper, they're making be. decent cuts. Could be. That's okay. Okay.
1: I mean, people nowadays in offices use office pens, could be.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But no, I feel like back then, butcher paper would have been a lot more specifically. Mm. You know, like (laughs) we could go to Costco or whatever and get like the big gigantic deli cellophane wrap.
1: Love Costco. You
0: know, whereas back in the day, it was only available at a deli, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're just trying to make fun of me.
1: What? I wasn't even (laughs) saying anything. (laughs) On August 18th, 1938, Elliot, Elliot Ness, who, who I will nickname the Loch Ness Monster or <laughs> Nessie.
0: The big Ness.
1: We'll call him Nessie. Anyways, Elliot Ness and a squad of 35 cops raided the homeless population of Cuyahoga mm-hmm. River through the run, Kingsbury run, and picked up 63 men. While these men were in custody, their homes were searched for clues. And on Ness's orders, the shacks they lived in were set on fire and burned. The press had a field day on this one and said that was completely pointless and solved nothing. But, for some reason, however, the murders stopped. There was one man who was arrested on suspicion for the murders. County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested a 52-year-old alcoholic butcher knife-toting man named Frank Dolezal. Like, he literally okay. carried around a butcher's knife and threatened people with it whenever they, they got him angry. Ah. It was an accessory for now him. Not a good look. No, and he was a raving alcoholic. Anyways, they picked him up for the murder of Flo Polio. Dolazal briefly lived with Polio and was acquainted with Edward Andrasi and Rose Wallace, two of the previous victims. When his home was searched, there were blood stains on the floorboards and four knives with possible blood stains on them. It was just like coated with a dark yeah, yeah. situation. <laughs> While he was in custody, he confessed to the murders, but it all seemed like he was coached. Specific details were told incorrectly. For example, in Dolezal's confection- confession, he claimed he threw the head, legs, and left arms of Polio into Lake Erie but the arm and legs were actually found at the back of an empty property. You see what I mean? How it was like specific details like that are correct, but just kind of flipped a little. Yeah. So this is what's what got people suspecting that he was coached. Okay. So he confessed to the murder. He gave these details, but they were shoddy. There were specific details, but they were given incorrectly. Okay. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but
0: why would the police give him false information?
1: Well, just... I'll tell you. Okay. I'll tell you my uh, theory. Plus, he was reportedly hammered when he signed his confession. O'Donnell was alone in his belief that Dolazal was responsible. Dolazal recanted his confession, saying he was forced, and on top of that, the bloodstains in his home were tested and they showed to be animal's blood.
0: So he was just a butcher.
1: Yeah. Dolezal hung himself in a cell before the case went to trial. What's fishy about this is that he hung himself on a hook that was 5 feet and 7 inches off the ground. Dolazal was 5'8". Gerber did an autopsy on Dalazal and found that he had 6 broken ribs that he had to have gotten while he was in the sheriff's custody because his like friends and people that knew him They were like, he didn't have broken ribs when y'all picked him up.
0: Yeah, especially not six. Like, yeah, you're going to notice that
1: the guards who were watching him said that they didn't leave him alone for longer than three minutes at a time. But Gerber, the coroner, claims that he died of asphyxiation and dying of asphyxiation takes approximately 12 minutes. minutes? He said 12 minutes. So there's a lot of speculation as to why he was accused in the first place. Here's my theory. I feel like the sheriff was probably getting pressure yeah. to pin it on somebody, just like how he pressured Elliot Ness to get involved in this case.
0: I mean, that's usually how it goes.
1: Yeah. And besides, if, if elections are coming around.
0: Yeah, you got to look good.
1: Yeah, because no one's going to reelect somebody who didn't
0: save. the population.
1: Yeah. suspect, suspect, suspect number two, Willie Johnson. On June 28, 1942, Willie Johnson took a cab to Kingsbury Run. Upon exiting the cab, he proceeded to dump a trunk under a bridge and the contents of a satchel he was carrying were thrown into a nearby bush. A young girl had seen Willie Johnson dispose of the trunk under the bridge. Although the Cleveland Torso Murder had seemingly ended his killing spree several years earlier, such acts still drew attention and set alarm bells ringing, and so the young girl alerted police, rightfully so. Yeah, yeah. Before the police could arrive, three young boys came across the trunk and decided to take a look inside. To the young men's horror, the young boys, they saw it contained a female torso.
0: Oh, shit.
1: In the nearby bushes, a head and arms were soon discovered. Her legs would be found at Johnson's home a couple weeks later. So just bits of this lady everywhere. Investigators were able to identify the victim as Margaret Frances Wilson, a 19-year-old prostitute. That's so fucking sad. Yeah. With the help of the cab driver, 36-year-old Willie Johnson was soon identified and arrested. The powerfully built man, originally from Helena, Arkansas, was known to police. Johnson had previously served time for highway robbery and had once been questioned in a murder investigation in Indiana. So this guy moved around. Mm-hmm. Johnson originally told police that he had gotten into an argument with Wilson, which ended with him knocking her out before simply going to sleep. Fairly plausible so far. Johnson then bizarrely claimed that he, upon waking, he discovered her in pieces on his floor.
0: A little bit said vicious, isn't it?
1: The strange story soon turned to a confession before once more Johnson returned to his original tall tale. The jury took just over an hour to return a verdict which would send Willie Johnson to the chair. Upon the verdict, Willie Johnson began acting erratically and so he was taken to an insane asylum to be evaluated. More than a year would pass before he would be officially sentenced to death. While on death row, awaiting his execution, Willie Johnson once again changed his story. Johnson now claimed that he was paid $25 to dispose of the body. He gave the name of the supposed real perpetrator as a man who had previously been eliminated from inquiries into the Cleveland Torso murders. Despite his claim and still claiming that he was innocent, on March 10, 1944, Willie Johnson was executed on the electric chair. Coroner Gerber, he, he was for, like, okay, he is a plausible candidate for being the murderer. He said, quote, Willie Johnson has all the qualifications of the so-called torso, kill- torso killer. He is smart, strong as an ox, and entirely capable of these crimes, both physically and mentally. Elliot Ness, though, had his eyes on someone else for the suspect, Dr. Francis Sweeney.
0: Sweeney Todd.
1: Yeah. Ness suspected Sweeney and wanted to clear him privately with only the company of a few of his trusted associates. Sweeney was part of a prominent political family, and if word got out that he was a suspect, it would cause problems for anyone involved in pursuing Sweeney. Ness took Sweeney to a hotel, hooked him up to a lie detector test, and he failed it. Ness had nothing else on him, so he couldn't pursue him any further. When Sweeney was released, as soon as he was released, actually, he committed himself to a mental institution, making him basically untouchable. Ironic, isn't it?
0: Clever bastard.
1: Here is an excerpt on Sweeney. Dr. Francis Sweeney had been a surgical resident at St. Alexis Hospital in the Kingsbury Run area since graduating in 1928. Unfortunately, Sweeney's demons got the better of him, and he soon after turned to alcohol. In 1933, he was a full blown alcoholic, which in turn made him abusive and violent, leading to the breakdown of his marriage. Despite spending time at the city hospital getting treatment for his alcoholism, Francis Sweeney was unable to beat his demons. In 1934, he lost both his job at St. Alexis Hospital and his family as Sweeney's wife was granted a divorce and custody of his two children. He was also served a restraining order by his now ex-wife. That's pretty harsh. Yeah. Francis Sweeney was now also displaying signs of psychosis alongside his alcoholism. The timing of his breakdown Interestingly coincides with the Lady of the Lake murder, the murder that was most likely the first committed by the Cleveland torso murder. There are several other reasons Dr. Francis Sweeney is an interesting suspect. Sweeney was born and raised in the Kingsbury-run area of Cleveland, so there is no doubt that he would have known the area well. Francis Sweeney was also described as a large and powerful man, so the disposal of the bodies would not have been a problem. Neither would the horrific dismemberments and decapitations that took place throughout the grisly Cleveland Torso murders due to Sweeney's medical knowledge and ability. Yeah. With all that said, there's never been any hard evidence found to connect Francis Sweeney and say definitively that he is the Cleveland Torso murderer. However, just like the killings stopped after the death of Frank Dolezal, it also should be said that they also stopped after Francis Sweeney was committed.
0: Which all happened around the same time anyway. Yes. Yeah.
1: But to this day no one knows who he was.
0: Dirty, rotten, slimy bastard. I bet you it was him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's always so it's,
0: a rich, powerful fucking family, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well, to this day it's still an unsolved murder or unsolved case.
0: That's insane. But I have to say, I'm the worst person to, like, if I was involved in a case, and like you were saying, like this is suspect number one, I'm like, that's him. (laughs) And it's suspect number two, and I'm like, that's him. (laughs) And then suspect number three, it just goes on. I'm like, yeah, I can't. Like, uh, when I watched that Making a Murderer, Mm -hmm. did you ever watch that? Mm -mm. It is very good, but it's a perfect example of how Netflix manipulates you, or any documentary series. Like, you start watching it and you're like, just like oh, it's just now. You're like that dirty slimy, whatever the guy's name, Brandon Dasier. Maybe that's the the nephew. Either way, you're like it was him, absolutely thousand percent, it was him. Then the next episode, you're like, couldn't have been him, absolutely <laughs> not. And then the next episode's another person or something else and you're like yeah those slimy cop bastards and then the next one is like those slimy you know what I mean? yeah anybody's the enemy
1: yeah anybody's the enemy and also they can highlight um information that they deem more important than other details
0: yeah or like even just the way the lighting in the scene is and it's like boom boom then he came home
1: and made a sandwich
0: boom, boom. You know what I mean? He's like, dirty, slimy, (laughs) buzzy. yeah.
1: Look at him. Spread mayonnaise on that bread with his murderous hands. Yeah,
0: He was seen in town with red stains all over him, but they left out the fact that he just left like a chili eating competition. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Or he really liked beets. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) That, That was a really good story, though. Thanks. I like, uh, as bad as it sounds, that that's a real Jack the Ripper type story. Yeah. And I do enjoy them.
1: Yeah. Bits like, of
0: bodies showing up all over the place.
1: All the information that was presented about Sweeney just made a lot more sense, a lot of sense, you know, and it just I feel like it is him if it's not. If we find out in the afterlife that it never was him, because I feel we'll, we'll have all the answers.
0: You're fucking better.
1: Um, I feel like it is him. Because it's so true, like every like the timeline of everything happening, lined up perfectly. Like the way that he just got worse in his psychosis.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, happened around the time of the first murder, and it makes sense because remember I was telling you, I, I how I was assuming that before that, um, like because you know it took a while for them to mention that the decapitation happened. So, so precisely cleanly. yeah yeah and if he even though he had medical knowledge and all that other stuff it stands to reason that while he was having this breakdown he wouldn't have
0: he was frantic or he was frantic
1: yeah. and you know what i'm saying But
0: as much as the other fella with the butcher knives if he was a butcher was also a raging alcoholic you know maybe he wasn't exactly doing clean work yeah i'm not saying who like it was definitely him or definitely the other yeah but
1: It couldn't. I don't think it couldn't have been him because how could he be so precise? You know, some like and then at the same time, it's it's, again it's another notch towards Sweeney because it had to have been someone who can do precise work and be erratic if they had to be or if they felt like it. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, I like me. If he had his
0: wits about him enough to check himself into an asylum. Yeah. Well, like,
1: like for me, like. No matter how many people I kill, I'm probably not going to know exactly where to cut if I want to decapitate someone, no matter how hard, I, how practiced I am or how much I try. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I have to have that, I, I have that to have training, practice and like, training yeah, for yeah, it, yeah. you know, so like. My decapitations are never going to be perfect, whereas Sweeney's would be. We're just going to have to keep trying. (laughs) But
0: no, I I get what you're saying. You know what I'm saying?
1: Like, you can go back and forth from being a a doctor with precision to being erratic, but you can't go from erratic to doctor precision. Yeah. You feel me?
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I, I get you. I get you.
1: And then he gets committed. He commits himself and everything stops.
0: That sealed the deal for me, to be honest. The fact that he even committed himself.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say like will like Willie Johnson is a good um example of how you can't go from butchering somebody to cutting someone precisely because you know people out here fucking killing people and cutting up their bodies in pieces like that guy did, but it wasn't surgeon surgical precision type of work. It was yeah, just yeah. butchering.
0: Yeah, I suppose the word butchering really is what it means, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's butchering. All right, well, thanks for that story. Please make sure to go check out our, oh yeah, our YouTube channel, Adam and Dulce, because we're trying to get. I think we have twenty two subscribers. Wow. And I'd like to get that to, let's 40? say hundred. Let's say hundred. Oh, okay. Right, we're, we're talking long term here. Big. Okay. Yeah. So even if you don't want to watch the videos, just go and subscribe, and then we'll go. Ha ha ha! Look at that. Um, <laughs> we also put out a video last week on our Patreon. Not saying that you have to go sign up or anything, but if you are interested, we put a video up there and it was actually us doing, just recording a miniature episode, a bonus creep episode, but we, had, we did it with cameras and the reaction seemed pretty good. People seemed to like it. So if, if that's something you're interested, go and check that out. Patreon.com forward slash weekly creep, I think. Let us know if you, if you try to look for it and you can't find it, we will send you the link. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff and i think that's probably about it right yeah all right tune in next week for the sally house part two and apparently some more cleveland of murders
1: <laughs> no that was the whole story
0: oh i know what you said the next story is also from cleveland
1: oh yeah
0: yeah sorry <laughs> all right it's dinner time now so bye-bye everybody okay bye, bye.